0: Live from the JL in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between you are listening to conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back Rabbi Tatz. thank you very much again for joining us for part two of individuality so last week we discussed more on the theoretical basis and this week we're going to go more practical how do you figure out what your role is in life and if you can apply that also to children possibly marriage and tell us more of the practical side.
1: Fine. Thank you, Rabbi Menna. Thanks for having me back on your excellent podcast series. I must say I've enjoyed listening to Rabbi Hirsch and your previous podcast, so I uh, appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we spoke in our last session about the theory of individuality. You'll recall we said there are three levels of order, and the highest is an appreciation of how all of the universe meshes into one, and yet each part is totally essential. The universe would fail without each part, and yet each part would fail if it weren't part of a larger reality. That leaves us with the idea that each human being, each Jew and each human being, is placed in the world with unique gifts and parameters. And it's your job to figure out how to maximize those with the understanding that that role is essential. If you don't fulfill your role perfectly, not only will you be a failure, the universe itself will fail to come to its completion. So the practical question becomes, how do you do that? What is your role? What's unique about me? How do I know what I'm supposed to be doing in the world? How do I guide my children? each one to find their own specific identity and role in the world. How do you guide your students if you're a teacher or a a rabbi or a spiritual teacher? How do you guide your disciples or your children outside of yourself also to find their own uniqueness? What is a parent's role in the early years and the later years to develop a child's uniqueness? I'd like to point out here that parents have a unique role. The reason is that although it's a teacher's duty in a school as well, very hard in a school where the teachers are overworked, large classes, to give the right attention to each child's individual, much easier to regiment them into a sameness, and of course children need to learn that as well. But a wise teacher and a highly developed teacher will notice the uniqueness of each student and try to attend to that in particular, and of course a parent's job is not only to give the children all that they need in general, but to nurture the uniqueness of each child. Unfortunately, schools are not set up to do that. You know, I attended a school system in South Africa, which was academically very good, but was not very broad. You could choose six or seven, what we would call in England, A level subjects out of a possible 10. I also had the privilege of being in high school in America. I graduated from an American high school as well. In that high school, you could choose from 110 different A <laughs> level subjects, including sociology, bicycle mending, pilot's license, uh, you know, advanced mathematics. I mean, you know, very, very broad wasn't academically very deep, but very creative and broad. It's a parent's job to make sure that the children have all the opportunities. In the orthodox religious world sometimes, religious studies emphasize to the point that children sometimes don't have exposure to music and sport and things that develop coordination and many other things, and it's a parent's job to think about all that. How do you do this in practice? I think the formula to use here is to understand that life fits into two phases and i'm arbitrarily going to divide them into until age 18 and from 18 on why do i use that age because when you are still going through the phase of education in high school that lends itself to one type of consideration once you leave school certain decisions need to be made in in broad outline and therefore let's divide life into two phases phase 1 is geared towards discovering your potential here's the overall here's the key here's the overall principle You know what your role is in the world, you know what your identity is, what work you need to do in the world by noticing what tools you've been given. That's the basic principle. If you want to know what God expects of you, observe what He's given you. If He's put you into the world as a Jew, as a man, as a woman, in a particular phase of the 20th century or the 21st century, whatever it is, in your particular place and time with your particular gifts of intelligence and looks and the kind of parents and the siblings, you've been given a bag of variables that were given specifically to you let me give you an analogy let's say you are a builder on a building site and there's a whole bunch of builders and the foreman walks you out onto the site gives you a bag of tools and puts you at a particular position on the building site it doesn't matter whether he speaks the same language as you or not it doesn't matter look where he's placed you see what needs to be constructed and see which tools he gave you it'll be patently obvious what you need to do if you give god credit for being at least that sort of a foreman he's put you on a work site and Rabbi Razner, you and I know, if you look at the world around you, it is hopelessly deconstructed and in need of improvement and construction. Right? But that's the thing.
0: It's too immense.
1: Okay, but you see clearly an immense amount of work needs to be done. Observe at which part of the task he has placed you and what tools has he given you. Are you empathic? Are you intellectual? Are you emotional? Are you creative? Are you artistic? Are you well-coordinated? All the tools that you were given are specifically given, none of them given by accident. Your personality and your life circumstances, it's axiomatic in Judaism that they've been given to you in order for you to fulfill your particular role. You've been put in the place and time that you uniquely are needed. Look where you've been placed, see what needs construction around you, and see what tools you've been given.
0: What if a listener says that they don't feel that they're special in any area I'm just a boring old pit?
1: Even a person who feels that they've got a bland uh, spread of talents... Let me suggest to you, that's also a unique construction. Somebody who has a large number of average abilities is just as unique as somebody who has only one ability. Let me speak for a while and perhaps I'll try to clarify that. But uh, of course, there's also the possibility that this listener who's saying that they're just an average Joe just doesn't have the insight into what, you know, they might need a sensitive spiritual teacher who can show them what is unique and special about them and their life situation. But the axiom we work from is that no human being is put here as a spare part. Each person, each blade of grass and each grain of dust is necessary, but all the more so human beings. Life fits into two phases. Phase one, discovering your uniqueness. The work of phase one is to find out what is special and different and unique about you. You cannot afford to miss one talent. And we not only talk about academic, we talk about everything. Are you well coordinated? Are you athletic? Are you quick-witted? Are you empathic? Are you more artistic or more scientific? Each nuance of your personality and your capabilities and your needs to be identified in sharp contrast. The work of phase one is to spread your wings and flex your muscles and discover every possible talent, every nook and cranny of your personality. A parent's role in these early years is to make sure that the child expresses and experiences and explores and discovers every unique aspect of their character. That's absolutely essential. You're an irresponsible parent if you don't do that. You send your child to a school where only a narrow range of subjects are addressed and taught. Right. What happens if your child doesn't excel in one of those? You know, my wife told me that the first day she taught at a junior school in the Orthodox world, she noticed on the wall star charts, you know, gold stars. Child get a gold star for spelling in Zulu and a silver star for doing mathematics and so forth. There was also a chart for midas, Midot, character traits, which means that if the child shared their sandwich with somebody, they got a star as well. Now that's Jewish education. If you give kids stars for calculus and for spelling in French, but you don't reward good character, that's deficient education. And let me assure you, you can be a very successful human being if you cannot do calculus or spell in French. But if you can't share your sandwich, you're in big trouble. And therefore, education needs to range across because there's a child who will never spell well in French or do calculus, but exemplary at sharing sandwiches. That's what that child's in the world for. And therefore, phase one till you're 18, the work is to define and discover all your abilities. And note please that children and teenagers feel the thrill of that. That's what they are. That's what their temperament is, is to explore the world and to find new areas and thrill to new discoveries. God has put into the mind and personality of children and teenagers that sense of wonder and that sense of life being large, larger than life, so to speak, so that they can richly and the self-confidence. It's if you ask a normal five-year-old what are you going to be when you're big? He'll tell you everything. He's mm-hmm. going to be an astronaut, garbage truck driver, police. He's going to be everything, right? He a sense of limitation. It's only when you get older that your world closes in on you and you feel the limitations. But children have a vast, unlimited sense of everything they could be doing. That's correct. That's what they're meant to feel. Phase two is from when you're 18 on. The work of phase two is to have discovered what is unique about your personality, that unique constellation of abilities that defines who you are, and spend every moment of the rest of your life becoming the world's greatest exponent of that unique picture and that unique combination of details that's special about you. Because you can't do everything. You are put in the world as part 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 of a puzzle. The part that you are needs to be fully and richly expressed. Let's go through these two phases. I would like to suggest to you that this should be done in practice. Namely, all our listeners tonight should sit down in a quiet room with no interruptions, no media, nothing else audible or visible, take a white chart of paper and put it in front of you. On the chart, draw a circle. Rabbi men, I'm not talking metaphorically, I'm talking literally. Draw a circle on a piece of paper. Into that circle, carefully write all the things that are unique and special about you and have the confidence to surgically excise and write outside the circle the things that you're not good at. If you do this accurately, you will draw a picture of your unique personality and life circumstances. You know, if you do this with um, teenagers, you see that when they define their circle well, you see two emotions on their face when they do that. Number one, a thrill of realizing what is different and special and unique about me And a sudden falling away of all jealousy. Why would you be jealous? Somebody else has another. If it wasn't given to you to be put in your circle, it's because you don't need it to walk your path in life. The lack of jealousy and the feeling of self-esteem is generated simultaneously by seeing what is special and different and unique about me. Of course, the teenager's temptation is to put into the circle all the things they fantasize about that they're not good at and devalue the things that they are. But that's immature. A mature mind values and thrills to the things that are special and unique about you and builds a clear picture of what those things are. The cost is to put outside the circle the things that are not you. Right? And therefore, success in life begins with using phase one to explore all possibilities and phase two begins by drawing a circle, which is a circle of limitation. We're not talking about a small circle. Everything that's relevant should go in. We're not talking about underachieving or selling yourself short. We're talking about putting all the things that are unique and special into that circle. Now, when I say draw a circle and put things in, I'm assuming that the circle stands on two bases. Let's get that clear. Base number one, which is not negotiable, is to be a decent human being. That's not negotiable. You can't walk around punching people in the nose because that's not part of my circle. No, no. That won't wash. There's a basic pedestal, a base to the circle, which is universal. And may I suggest that that base contains two and only two human characteristics. And you may have guessed what they are. Consideration and concern. We spoke about this in our previous session. A decent human being needs to have consideration, let's call it self-control, don't interfere and hurt others, and concern, help where necessary. That's all. Those are the only two basics your child needs. Your child needs to know how to control himself, be considerate, not interfere with others, and to engage others where necessary. That's all, those are the priorities. That's not negotiable, that's not in the circle. Everybody needs that. If you're Jewish, there's a second base that underlies your circle. You appear a good Jew. There's certain Jewish obligations which are unique and special about Jews that the non-Jewish world doesn't have. If you're defaulting on those, you're not fulfilling your role. After all, one of the unique features that you have as an individual is that you're born into the world as a Jew. Or, in the case of converts, you chose that for yourself. But converts usually have much less problem with this because they've done it deliberately. But if you be born into the world as Jewish, it's just as important as knowing that you're male or female. Yes, Ravad. I know that that's a vexed issue today as well. (laughs) But if you're born into the world as a male, a well-adjusted male functions as a male. I'm not getting into the medical issues and the genetic problems. I'm talking about a general approach to life. So you put below the circle two bases. Are you an accomplished human being, kind, gentle, loving, let's call it consideration and concern? That's not negotiable. And on top of that, are you fulfilling your Jewish obligations? Absolutely. But on top of that, the circle defines your uniqueness. I would say the circle is like choosing a necktie. Before you choose a necktie, you need to be wearing your trousers. <laughs> Walking into a men's clothing outfitter and choosing a necktie without your trousers on is a little ridiculous. The circle stands on the base of decency and universal human values that we all need to work on. Everybody needs to have self-control, kindness, empathy. That's not negotiable. But the circle is your style, how you emphasize those, which is the pattern of priorities, which is secondary. And that is the, that is the thing. Now in practice, how do you find the circle? How do you put in the circle? How do you know what goes in the circle? The way you fill in your circle requires two tools. One is brutal and ruthless honesty about yourself. Not your fantasies, what you'd like to be, but honesty about yourself. And second is, you need a Rebbe, you need a master, you need a teacher. Somebody, by definition, more mature than you, insightful about yourself, not afraid to tell you the truth about yourself. None of us can see ourselves objectively. That's why you need a teacher. Nobody would dream of becoming a world-famous athlete or pianist or gymnast without a master and a teacher, without a coach. That's why you need a wife too. Indeed, indeed. Only the wife has a delicate job because she must show you what's wrong with you and make you think you thought of it yourself. (laughs) So a wife has a much more demanding and delicate job than the most high-pressure coach in the world. But be that as it may, that is what it is. Now, parents can be very good coaches in this regard, although parents are often awfully unobjective about their children. But they're very often objective about things that children are not. I'll never forget when I was 17 and decided to become a doctor. I went to my father, who was a wonderful doctor. Ever since I was three, I just wanted to be a doctor like him. I went to my dad and I said, you know, dad, I'm applying for medicine. I'll never forget that moment. My father put down what he's reading and he said to me, you know, I think you'd be better as a teacher or a lawyer. I thought my father had been like drinking, like who wants to be a teacher? They don't respect you, they don't pay you. I completely ignored my father, studied medicine, and became a teacher. <laughs> so, you know, you need that input into your personality. We're also talking about creativity, not simply the narrow academic range of conventions. You may have something very unconventionally special about you, but that's given for a reason. Also, you mentioned the person who sees themselves as a bland sort of non-special person. Some people have a very broad set of talents. I remember the Rabbi Fachler telling me, I think when he was functioning in South Africa, he was the head of five different organizations at once. He was a community rabbi, he led the counter cults movement, he was a bereavement counselor. I mean like five essential when he died, they had to employ five people. He was very broadly talented. In fact, when we had this discussion, he told me that Rabbi told him that he should not limit himself to one area because he was very broad. Okay, but that's unique. How many people are like that? And I'll tell you another person I knew as a youngster who was a world chess champion, international chess champion, and mathematical genius. It was like, uh, you know, his social skills weren't. uh... When we went for aptitude testing, the computer printed out only one option for him. It told him he should become a lighthouse keeper. (laughs) Today he's a famous professor of mathematics. Well, you know, he had a very clear identity. His circle was, you know, logic and mathematics, you know, so that was very clear. But it's absolutely essential to define what is in your circle so you see uniquely who you are. And you're thrilled to that because we play to our strengths. You ought to play to your strengths. right? If you're good at something, those a given. If you're not good at anger management, you need to work on that because that's in the base. But if you're not good at playing the saxophone, or you can't play a sport to save your life, then you won't put in the world to play that sport. You may wish to do it as leisure. You may wish to do it as a self-development. But attempt to be the world tennis champion when you can't hold the racket, you know, it's just ridiculous. You are making a tragic mistake in the world if you're gifted as a mathematician and you're trying to be a footballer, right? A tragic mistake because those are not the gifts that you were given. And therefore, you need to be sensitive to what it is that you do well and excel in that And phase two, of course, is closing the circle. You close the circle because you can't keep exploring and never achieving. Now, when I tell this to youngsters, young teenagers, they get very upset. You mean I'm not going to be able to do everything? I'm not going to be able to marry all of them, you know? (laughs) No, you can't marry all of them. (laughs) And here we come to a final issue, which I'll maybe finish with this. The hardest part of this agenda is closing the circle. To close the circle and say, I'm never going to be that, I'm never going to be that. The immature mind looks with fantasy and longing at all the things that I'd like to be. The mature mind looks at the things in the circle that you can indeed be. And so that is very hard. And according to deep teaching, it's the male mind that has more trouble closing the circle. In Kabbalistic thinking, the woman is the circle. After all, we mentioned this before, the man gives seed by the billion in the conception of a child. He is unlimited. The woman gives one egg only. So she is by nature a closed circle. Amaral points out this is the deep reason why in Torah a man can marry many women. I mean, we don't do it today because we're incapable. But theoretically, in, in halachic principle, a man can marry many women. Why? Because he is a multi-potential source of energy. But she's the one who brings it to fruition. She brings it to closure. She makes it real in the world, and the world is finite. Spiritual potential is endless. But finite reality is very limited. Ideas flow in your mind and they they, they swirl around in, in multiple forms, but when it comes down to concrete reality, a thing can only take one shape at one time. And therefore the man gives seed by the billion, but the woman produces one child. The greatness of the male is endless energy. The sadness of the male is its only energy. Its only potential. The sadness of the woman is she produces only one, but the greatness is she brings a life into the world. The price you pay for having something in a finite world is all the infinite and endless possibilities that you have to sacrifice. And so the greatness of realizing that you close the circle, the price you pay is all the things you might have fantasized. You know, Rabbi you see this so clearly. Here's a young man of marriageable age and he's resisting getting married. Why? Because he looks out at the world of women and there's thousands and each (laughs) one is more wonderful and beautiful than the next. He, He thinks if he gets married he's going to have only one. But the tragedy is right now he has none. But the childish mind prefers to explore the potentialities and never close the circle. What is the Western ideal? The playboy. What does he do? Women all over, money, all means of, does he ever close the circle and get married and settle down? No. And what do we call him? Playboy. Two words of infantile childishness, right? And therefore, yes, there's a sadness in closing the circle. It's nerve-wracking, and it's, it's an anxious time where you choose a marriage partner. But now you have a partner. Now you can produce something fertile. And therefore, closing the circle is very, very difficult.
0: You see people, even middle-aged, suddenly completely reinventing themselves. What
1: happens? Okay, so if a person needs to keep a circle open, or have the courage to open the circle, because you did not do this exercise thoroughly when you were young, absolutely, of course, of course. We, we see Balai Churva forging a new path in the, in later life. But ideally, by the time you're 18, you should know whether you're autistic, scientific, mathematical, well-coordinated. Yes, you can discover talents later. But if you're privileged to have been given the opportunities to explore, by the time you reach 18, 19, 20, you should already know the major currents of interest and energy in your person. Of course, life is cruel and some people don't get to explore or to even have the opportunity to fulfill. But we're talking about an ideal system. You know, you see a child a creature of the unlimited. Here's a child standing a delicatessen, outside a delicatessen, looking in the window. There are 25 different cakes and cookies and buns, and the child has one pound in his grubby little hand, but it's an ecstatic child as it drools over all of them. Finally, he extends his pound, and he chooses one cookie, and as he's about to receive it, all 24 others start to glow brightly. Because to have to limit yourself down to the one and realize you're not getting those is torture for a child. I always say one of my sons, I won't mention him by name because he probably die of embarrassment, but when he was a, walking to school with him when he was six years old, he, he became silent for a couple of minutes and then he said to me with real concern, he said, you know, Abba, I'm not sure if I'm going to marry Debbie or Frida. These were our, our neighbors, you understand? I said to him, well, what's the problem? He said, because whichever one I marry, the other one's going to be so upset. <laughs> we get to shul, we walk up the steps and he stops and he looks at me with real concern. He says, Abba, I just realized whoever I marry, all the others are going to be so upset. He's a very self-confident young man. As it happens, he didn't marry Debbie or Frida, and I, I have no doubt they're very upset. <laughs> but the point is, you see, in his young mind, he's aware of all potentialities, suddenly realizes you can't do it all. You're going to have to limit yourself. Is that one of the lures of the lottery that gives adults
0: the potential of mm. seeing this unlimited fancy? That's the lure of money, not just the lottery.
1: The lure of money is potential. It's power to do all sorts of things. But it's immature to want money. It's mature to want money to do something. As Ravdessa classically points out, a person who wants money will never be satisfied, because you never have enough. A person who wants money for something, when they get to that amount of money, they have it and they buy the thing. That can be satisfied. But wanting power or money can never be satisfied because what you want is the potential, and there's always more. A mature mind doesn't want potential. A mature mind, the immature mind wants money. The mature mind wants the money to do something specific and does the thing, closes the circle, buys that particular thing. The immature mind, very many wealthy people, multimillionaires, often don't buy things. There are famous cases of people who are fabulously wealthy because there's the potential. They don't want to close the circle and manifest in one particular way. Let me tell you a story and we'll finish with that. There's a story about a peasant in old Russia, a farmer, peasant farmer, who unfortunately had no land to farm, stood weeping by the side of the road in utter despair. The Tsar of Russia rode past in his gold carriage and he sees this peasant crying and he is moved, motivated, gets out of his carriage. What are you crying about? The peasant is overawed by the presence of the Tsar. He tells him, your majesty, I'm I'm a farm, I have no land to farm. The Tsar says, what's the problem? I own Russia. Drives a stake into the ground where they stand and gives the man three others. He says, walk as far as you wish, plant another stake in the ground, turn, walk again, plant a third one, turn again, walk again, put the fourth stake in the ground and all the land... Between the four stakes is yours, a gift from me. Peasants overjoyed. He walks for a few miles and is about to put the stake in the ground. He says to himself, why turn here? Walks a few more miles, about to put the stake in the ground, and says, but I could have more. And as the story goes, he never stopped walking. Anyway, these are some thoughts about closing the circle and defining one's role. And in summary, you were put into the world for a unique role. Your child was given particular gifts. No two children are the same. You know, Rabbi Reisner, Talented kindergarten teachers can pick this up when a child's two, three, four years old. I can tell you exactly who that person is going to be. And there's a certain uniqueness that can be picked up quite early. But certainly by the time you're young, young adults and you have to make choices, you can't do every profession. You can't play every instrument. You can't play every sport. You can't marry everyone. And therefore, no matter how broad your circle is and no matter how expansive your horizons, you will not be able to do everything. And the ideology we have in the world is you weren't here to do everything. You're here to do your piece. You're here to play your instrument in the orchestra perfectly with an ear to the rest of the music as well. And therefore, basic music exercises we all have to do, like I said before. There are rules of music, you need to know them. But then there's your unique expression, playing the instrument you need to be playing in your particular position in the orchestra so that your music is unique and it blends also into a symphony far greater than yourself.
0: Thank you. Just a couple of questions before we end that I had when you were speaking. One of the things is before 18... That was the phase when you discover your potential surely the social pressure of teenagers limits that i mean before 18 people are scared to be too expressive of their talents how does one get around that
1: i agree with you i think it's one of the hazards of the of the course and therefore i think there are a couple of solutions one is you are privileged to have a school environment that provides many opportunities a wonderful thing if you can and i think it's a unfortunate limitation when a school is unable to provide many areas of expression for their children. I'd like to point out also that it's not good for their character. When the school offers a narrow range and a child doesn't happen to excel at one of those, they lose confidence. That's tragic. But if the school has music and art and kindness initiatives, as long as there's something that the child can really feel. Here's the principle. Every human being needs to feel that they are the best in the world at something. And it's not so important what. You can balance a bottle on your nose better than anybody else can. It's good enough for a child. But the the child, Guinness Book
0: of Records brings that. Well, out.
1: the child needs to know that I'm uniquely needed in the world. You know, our great teachers have said, the great Bale Musa have said, that if a person comes to the conclusion that they are utterly unnecessary in the world, utterly unnecessary, one of two things happen. Either they disintegrate and die, or they disintegrate and become insane, and in their insanity they become very great. I'm Napoleon, I'm God, I'm Caesar. <laughs> very interesting, where does that come from? Because that mind, although it's disintegrated, knows they are here for some unique purpose and they have these delusions of grandeur. You know, speaking as a doctor and having worked in mental institutions, I never yet met an insane individual who told me I'm nobody. I'm just a little puppy. I'm a, they're always very great. Napoleon, you know, God, the prime minister, the president. And there's an element of truth in that. You, you are destined for greatness.
0: Wow. And final question. Should one be wary about tuning one child's talents, let's say one has a talent that's exceptionally talented in one area, in case the, his siblings get a bit jealous?
1: Let's think about the alternative. You're going to limit their child and stunt their growth for the sake of their siblings? No, that's not correct. How do you handle that situation? The child needs to be given every opportunity to develop excellence, and the others need to be taught to be proud of that, and not jealous, and give their own. Give them every opportunity to excel. It does not make sense to limit someone. I once had the tragic experience of a head of a high school who had a teacher who was unbelievably strikingly talented. Turned the children on in the most idealistic manner. And the head let that teacher go. I said, why? He said, make my other teachers feel inadequate what wow. a tragedy yeah. what a tragedy instead of help investing in the other teachers growth and, and mm. that's a tragedy and therefore no that does not make sense
0: thank you very very much indeed Robert Atz. as usual any comments feedback suggestions can be sent to podcast at jle.org.uk thank you for listening and thank you again Robert Atz. thank you